0: with a random question. Do you know how Pluto was discovered? Not the Disney dog, okay? I mean like the planet or what used to be called a planet. Do you know how Pluto was discovered? It's back in 1909. A guy named Percival Lowell. Now, if your name's Percival, okay, you're gonna end up being a mathematician or an astronomer. And this guy was both. And so what happened is, uh, back in that time, there was not a, a telescope big enough to see or, or powerful enough to see to Pluto. And instead, Percival, he was uh, studying through a telescope, he was studying Uranus. Okay, I'm a 52-year-old pastor, but every time I'm like a middle school boy like that, right? Like not my, but you, anyway. Uh, so, so, anyway, so he's, he's studying, uh, let's say that planet, Uranus, that planet, okay? So he's studying that planet, and what he notices is something is affecting its orbit. And he was able to deduce through calculations the presence of another as-yet-undiscovered planet. He called it Planet X. It was 1909. He then passed away in 1916. It wasn't until 1930 that there was a telescope powerful enough. And so what they used is Percival's calculations. They used his research to pinpoint exactly where to point the telescope. And sure enough, there it was. They discovered Pluto. I'll tell you that because learning about the Holy Spirit is a little bit like discovering Pluto. We are going through this series we called Creed. And as a, Part of that, what we're doing is we're going through the Apostles' Creed. This is this ancient summary of Christian beliefs, essential core Christian doctrines. And so we have already looked at the fact that the Father is God. Last week we looked at the Son, God the Son, who is God himself. And now we come to the Holy Spirit. The difficulty is that we don't have a telescope pointed at the Holy Spirit. And you think about it, it wasn't him, but it was Jesus who walked on the earth. Like, oh, there's a lot of data about Jesus right there. There's whole books of the Bible about Jesus. When you look at the Bible as a whole, there's many more texts about the Father and the Son than there is about the Holy Spirit. There's a reason for that. We'll talk about that. But we don't have a telescope pointing at him. After all, think about it. We are not called to be disciples of the Holy Spirit. Anyone called you a Holy Spiritian? No, a Christian, a Christian, right? We're Christians. So go figure, go figure. Now, uh, one way to get at it then is the word spirit in Greek is pneuma, okay? The holy pneuma of God. If you ever work with pneumatic tools, pneuma, pneumatic, those are tools powered by wind or air. So the, the term pneuma means wind. He's the holy wind of God. Okay, so this is similar to Pluto. Think about this. Have you ever seen the wind? You can't see the wind. What you see is the trees moving. You see the effect of the wind. You don't see the wind itself. And again, that is like the Holy Spirit. So there is a pastor in Canada. His name's Tony Mann. And he said this. Moving messages changed hearts Transformed minds, healed bodies, reconciled relationships, met needs, jubilant song, and poignant prayers are all evidence of the Spirit's active presence as well as our intimate relationship to the Trinity. See, we don't see him. There's no telescope on him, but we see his impact on things around Now, if we're honest, we tend to be very weak on the Holy Spirit, on our understanding. We're ignorant of him. That's a big problem because we're Trinitarians. We've been studying the Trinity. The Trinity is one of the most important tests for orthodoxy. What's orthodoxy? Okay. Uh, If you go to an orthodontist, your teeth are all jacked up and you want him to make your teeth ortho, straight. That's what that means. Straight teeth. Orthodont. So Ortho means straight, orthodox, orthodoxy. Doxa means opinion or belief or teaching. So what we want is right or upright or straight teaching. And a test, a big test for orthodoxy is the Trinity. Now, nobody questions the Father. Last week we learned that yes, the Son of God, Jesus, is God himself. But then we get to this Holy Spirit part. Uh Uh-oh. And we tend to be very ignorant. And so Francis Chan wrote a book called Forgotten God. Great book. I'd really recommend it. One of the best things about it is the title. The title's perfect. It's all about God, the Holy Spirit, but he calls it the Forgotten God. Why? Because we tend to forget about the Holy Spirit. For most Christians, particularly in our camp, our Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. That's our Trinity, and that's not right. The forgotten God, the Holy Spirit. So let's correct that today by going to the Apostles' Creed. Here you go, all about the Holy Spirit. That's all we got. I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's all the Apostles' Creed says. Now, so for for your frame of reference, remember, this is what it says about Jesus. 71 of 111 words about Jesus. Look at all that about Jesus. Then we get to the Holy Spirit. That's all we got. That is not very helpful. So let's look at Redemption Chapel's doctrinal statement. Here's what it says: We believe in the Holy Spirit, a third person in the Trinity, who convicts the world of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. He is the life of every believer, and he empowers the preaching and teaching of the gospel. Okay there's a little bit more to work with there. What we read is, yes, he is the third person of the Trinity. He is God himself. So, like the Father is God, like the Son is God, so the Holy Spirit is God. We don't believe it because of the Apostles' Creed, and we don't believe it because of our doctrinal statement. We believe it because the Bible tells us that. This is our faith revealed and received from God himself. So let's look at some things in the Bible. As you look at this, first let me warn you. If you came today saying, I really hope Pastor Rick has a lot of slides and a lot of scripture references, you're in luck. You're welcome. You're welcome. So just be warned. All right, so the Holy Spirit is God. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Sp- that's the Great Commission where he's spoken of as peers with the Father and the Son, and we're told to baptize in his, their name, God's name. Uh, Acts 5, 3 through 5, to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Same thing. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says that the Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of and searches the depths of God. Now, nobody knows your thoughts but you. The Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God. He is God uh, and searches the depths of God. God is infinite, and the only one who's infinite is God himself, and the only one who can search his depths is God himself. The Holy Spirit does that. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that we are God's temple. Now, who is it that dwells in God's temple? God, that's what makes it God's temple. He's there. Says you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's how you're God's temple. His Holy Spirit makes it God's temple. Hebrews 9.14 says that the Holy Spirit is eternal. Now, uh, you go, wait a minute, aren't we eternal? Well, (laughs) from from the moment you came to faith in Christ, then you have eternal life. So from that moment forward. But God is eternal in both directions. He is all time eternal. And that's what it says about the Holy Spirit. He's eternal. He's God. And to make it even more clear, 2 Corinthians 3.17, the Lord is the Spirit. There it is. So he's got. Now, uh, I want to share with you a quote from Dr. Wayne Grudem. Uh, he is a theological giant on the modern landscape. Most of our pastors have his systematic theology text, and it's about that thick, it's a huge book, uh, on our bookshelves. I used to until my son stole it. So Caleb, if you're listening, return my dang book. Thank you for that. So, uh, great, great, he's a great guy. Uh, I actually had the privilege of sitting in his class as he taught from his book, Systematic Theology. And uh, he is a giant of a theologian, but he is not a giant of a man. He's a little guy. Uh, You wouldn't guess that from his reputation. Every day in class, he wore khakis and white tennis shoes. Whatever shirt, but uh, every day. Just a great, warm, gentle, kind-hearted, brilliant, loves Jesus, great theologian. And here is what he said about the Trinity. He said, when we think of God as eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, and so forth, we have a tendency to think only of God the Father in connection with these attributes. But the biblical teaching on the Trinity tells us that all of God's attributes are true of all three persons, for each is fully God. Thus, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are also eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent, infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely loving, omniscient, and so forth. He's God, like in the real and full sense. So the Holy Spirit is God. But like the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit is also a person. And what do we mean by that? We don't mean that he's a human being, only Jesus took on human flesh, but we mean he is personal. He is a person in the sense that he has mind and emotion and will and actions and communicates and has relationship, it's personhood. And we tend to understand that about the Father, we understand that about the Son, but when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we go to Star Wars, the force, the impersonal force behind the universe, and that's not personal. That's very impersonal. But that's not what the Bible says about him. Let's look at a few more bits of evidence here. Holy Spirit is a person. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 refers to him as he, not it. It's very consistent throughout the scriptures. He is a person. It is an impersonal force. He is a he. He works and he wills. That's what a person does. Ephesians 4, 30, he is grieved. That means he can feel emotion. John 16, 13, he hears and he speaks. John 14, 17, he can be known. It's a very personal sense. Not known about, but known personally. Acts 5, 3 through 4, he can be lied to. Not that you can pull it off, because he's God, he's omniscient, he knows what's going on, but you can lie, you can't lie to a force. Right? He can be lied to. So... The Holy Spirit is a he, not an it. And when people refer to him and say it, it's like nails on a chalkboard to me. But I gotta be honest, every once in a while I slip up too and we gotta help each other with this. He is a he, not an it. He's a person. So, just like the Father and just like the Son, the Holy Spirit is God and he is a person. And just like the Father and Son, he does a lot of stuff. I want to talk about what the Holy Spirit does. We're going to start out looking backwards, what he does in the past. Here's some of the things Uh, small deals, like the incarnation. Remember, Mary, how will this be? Well, uh, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It was because of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was conceived in Mary, okay? Then the ministry of Jesus. Look, when we went throughout the Gospel of Luke, over and over and over, it kept saying, Jesus, comma, full of the Holy Spirit, comma, dot, 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 whatever. He did. So, Jesus, the way he pulled off his ministry was by the Holy Spirit. You go, well, no. Wasn't it because Jesus is God? Isn't that how he did the miracles? Okay, wait a minute. Then, how the apostles do the miracles? Are the apostles God too? No. The apostles were full of the Holy Spirit. It said Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. He was the perfect example of humanity. The second Adam. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and that's how he did his ministry. Including his crucifixion. Hebrews 9.14 said Jesus did the cross through the power of the Holy Spirit. As well Romans 8.11 says the resurrection. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And so if you have the incarnation, the ministry of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, folks, that's our salvation. We don't have salvation except for the Holy Spirit. And how do we know that? Well, we know it from the Scriptures, which we have because of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, men carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote. He's the one that inspired the writing of the Scriptures. Turns out this forgotten God has been really busy, really busy. And that's what he's done in the past. What does he do now? Oh, well, not that much. Just C6. <laughs> Unbelievable. Now, I'm going to just rip through some of these. If you are like, "Wait, wait, that's not true. Where's that in the Bible? Email us. We'll give you a reference. We'll help you out with that. Realize that these are some of the things said about him in the Scriptures. It's not an exhaustive list. He is God. He does what he wants. He's not limited to my puny little list. You get that? But the first one I'll camp on, he glorifies the Father and the Son. Which means the Holy Spirit is not there to get glory for himself, but to be used to give glory to God the Father and God the Son. It's like a spotlight. If you think about a spotlight, a spotlight sheds light on something worthy. Now, we're not supposed to look at the spotlight. If you look at the spotlight, it hurts your eyes. You're supposed to look at what the spotlight is highlighting. The Holy Spirit is like that. He throws light on Jesus and we're supposed to be in awe of Jesus, which means if you're in a religious environment that is always putting emphasis on the Holy Spirit, something's wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. He glorifies the Father and the Son. He convicts of sin, bears witness to Christ, empowers Christians to witness. He builds the church. He equips and gifts believers to serve each other and the world. He regenerates us to salvation. He helps us pray. Let me tell you a little bit about that one. You know those times when your life is completely wrecked and you're just broken and you're sobbing. You can't even speak to people. You can't pray to God. You can't even form words. You're just weeping on your knees. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit completes our prayers with groans too deep for words, which means in that moment, he translates your emotional sobs into prayer before the Father. He helps us pray. If you look up on the right, he helps in comforts in general. He's called the paraclete, which is the helper or comforter. He gives us hope. He illuminates scripture, which means the only reason you can open the scripture and understand anything in there is because of the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies us. Now this is a good one. because Listen, you could not accomplish your salvation so God gave you Jesus. Your sanctification means growth in your walk with Jesus. You can't accomplish your sanctification so he gave you the Holy Spirit. God doesn't have faith in you. He has faith in himself. He gives us himself. Granted, we need to cooperate through faith and obedience. But he sanctifies us. He manifests his character in us. It's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. He gives us godly character. And then he is the down payment of salvation, which means he's the seal. He's the promise that when you come to faith in Jesus, God puts his Holy Spirit in you as a down payment, saying, that one's mine, and I will bring that one home someday. It's a promise. He testifies to our salvation. And then this last one's really big. He indwells every true believer in Jesus from the very moment of salvation. It's very important, so I'll give you some verses on this one. Here's John 16, verse 7. This is Jesus speaking before the crucifixion. And he says, look, I'm going to bolt, and it's actually really good. Huh? Wait, what? Here's what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The Helper is the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's who he's talking about. And you go, man, so the disciples had Jesus right there. Wouldn't that have been awesome? Oh, Jesus says, no, that's worse. It's better that I go away and I give you the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit inside us, not outside us, next to us. Look at John chapter 14, verse 16 and following. Jesus again says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Future tense at that point in history because Jesus has not died and purchased it yet and sent the Holy Spirit. But the point is that he's in us. What's the three most important things about real estate? You've heard this, right? Location, location, location right? Same thing with the Holy Spirit. Most important thing about him is he's not outside of it. He's inside of his location on the inside. And that means something that does something. Look what Jesus said about this in John chapter seven. He said, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Look at that promise from Jesus. Listen. Listen. <laughs> That does not sound to me like a religion of trying to please some distant external God that I barely know, but I'm striving to make him happy. It doesn't sound like this isn't intimate, this is internal, this is not outside in, this is inside out. That sounds to me like life and joy and fulfillment and purpose. Rivers of living water just flooding out of us because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. It's totally to our advantage that Jesus went away. Think about the apostles. When they were walking with Jesus and he was right there, they were idiots. Read it. They were knuckleheads. What happened? Jesus ascends, sends the Spirit, Pentecost comes on the church, and from that moment on, they were spiritual studs. That's a difference maker right there in history. That moment. So here's what I'm saying. You... if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you have the same Holy Spirit residing in you, that same power source. here's the problem. We are both desperately dependent upon the Holy Spirit and woefully ignorant of who he is and what he does. (laughs) Those don't play well together, right? We have the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Bible, and that's just not good enough. It's not who he is. So the early church figured that out. And while they realized the Apostles' Creed said very little about the Holy Spirit, uh, they came along later with the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed was not the only one. Nicene Creed came along 325 and then was amended in 381. And they said, hey, man, the church needs to know a lot more. So here's what they said in the Nicene Creed. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. That's better, right? A little bit more? Wonderful. But here's what happened in church history. I'm a church history geek. This is really interesting to me. If you're a history buff, you're going to love this. If you're not, sorry. (laughs) That's the way it is, but... Stick with me on this because there's a big point coming from a big point. Here's what happened. In the early 400s, Augustine started teaching about the Trinity. If you want to be snobby, call him Augustine. Stop. Augustine starts teaching about the Trinity. And he wants to make sure everybody understands that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equals. They're each fully God. So when he looks at this, he sees, well, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, but not the Son. Doesn't that mean the Son's subordinate to the Father? And so he starts to teach and he, uh, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Doesn't that mean the Holy Spirit? Like, in, in my opinion, it's not that huge of a deal. But, uh, so he starts to teach that. He's primarily teaching in the Western or Roman churches, the Latin-speaking churches. And they start to buy into this so that in the 800s, Pope Leo III decides to add to the Nicene Creed. Now that's guts, man. That is gutsy. And so he adds to it, and what he makes it say is, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son? He didn't call an ecumenical church council at all. He just did it on his own. That would become a problem with the popes and a problem with Roman Catholicism and led to the Protestant Reformation. But that's what he did. He sticks it in there. Now, the uh, Greek churches uh, didn't agree, okay? So this became the phililoque controversy. Phililoquate, that's Latin for, and the son. Okay, that's what it means. And the Greek or the Orthodox, that's where we get the split. So in 1054, it led to the Great Schism, which means the church split over this, okay? Roman Catholic, from which Protestant Reformation comes, and Greek Orthodox splits over this very thing. So who is correct? I gotta be honest. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Listen, when you go to the Scriptures, we have so precious little text that gives us some view into the inner workings, the mysterious inner workings of the Trinity Himself, how He's related to Himself throughout eternity. We... We just don't have a lot of text on that. And so to be dogmatic on this point is a little bit silly. And I'll tell you what, even if I grant the point that the Holy Spirit proceeds and the Son from both the Father and the Son, okay, next question, what's that mean? (laughs) Ask the theologians and you get crickets, right? They they like, they'll blow smoke, but they give no data. like it doesn't, we have no idea what that even means, Still, they fought over it and split the church over it. And here's my point. Don't miss this. Here's the point. Most Christians will debate over the Holy Spirit rather than being filled by him. And that's not just in 1054. That's today. Most Christians will have debates about the Holy Spirit rather than be filled by him. And this is where theology gets dumb. And just silly and useless and fussy. Where scholars are fighting over details about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity that are barely revealed in Scripture at all. God didn't want us to know this evidently. He'd been much more clear. And while they're debating over that stuff, they're showing precious little evidence that the Holy Spirit is filling them and empowering them and influencing them. Let's not be like them. Let's not be like them. They swallowed and... A camel but straining gnat. Let's not be like them. So let's talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, which I left off the list earlier, but it's kind of a big deal. Told you if you're a true Christian, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's inside you, but that doesn't mean you're filled by Him to be empowered by Him, influenced by Him, enjoying Him, acknowledging Him, submitted to Him. That's filled. It means, to be filled by the Spirit means to be under the influence. Now, when we use the term under the influence, what do we usually mean? Getting drunk, right? It's usually what we mean by it. That's interesting. Look at this. Ephesians 5.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul makes a connection between these two thoughts. After all, what happens when you get drunk? The alcohol doesn't just go in your stomach and indwell you, but it goes through your stomach wall into your bloodstream. It fills your whole body and changes how you act. Guys, the women get really pretty, don't they? And then you get really dumb Right? I mean, that, I'm saying, like, it, you're under the influence of alcohol. It is influencing. I remember the last time I got drunk. It was over 30 years ago. Uh, I was a young college student. I was not really walking significantly with Jesus yet. But what happened, uh, my grandfather died. My grandpa loved him, very important to me. Uh, he died, and a part of my life was going down to St. Pete and getting in the boat, and going out to the Gulf and fishing and all that. So my brother and I went down to uh, take the boat out and spread his ashes. And um, one night, I, I don't know if it was before or after we did that, but one night we went to the beach, uh, and it was me, my brother, his girlfriend who became his wife. I don't, I don't think they were married yet. And the three of us went to the beach, and it was totally deserted. It was just us three and a fifth of Jack Daniels. And so we just started drinking. And what? Uh, I, later that night, it ended up puking my grandmother's bushes. She never knew about it. She's dead. We're going to be okay here. But anyway... Um, but uh, we're throwing down shots. And, and then uh, I just started this thing. You know how on the beach they have those plastic blue trash cans? Or, so every 15 minutes or so, I would yell, trash can. I'd jump up off the sand, sprint, and tackle the thing. Just deck this trash can. Set it back up, come over, keep drinking. 15 minutes later, trash can. Boom. Okay, Listen. I was under the influence. I don't mean to give glory to drunkenness. That's sin. I was in sin. I, I'm repentant of that, okay? But The point is, it was influencing my behavior. You understand, to this day, I have no thing where I love to deck trash cans. That's not something I do. That was not me. I was under the influence, okay? So here we are with the Holy Spirit. What does God want for us regarding the Holy Spirit? He wants us to be under the influence. Not just indwelt, but let him fill our whole being and let him empower us and lead us to be under the influence is to act differently because the Holy Spirit is compelling you. And that's not a one and done thing. That's an every moment of every day for the rest of your Christian life to have a conscious recognition of the presence of God that he is within me speaking of the presence of God, there's a great book called The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Now, this is interesting. So he was, um, he was a monk in a monastery. His job was to wash the dishes. That's all he was, a dishwasher in a monastery. Uh, but he had this profound practice of the presence of God. He got it and he did it so much so that people would write to him About Hey, explain that, and he would write back. That's what the book is, a record of his correspondence explaining this. And it's profound, and it's beautiful, and it's awesome. He not only had this intellectual assent that God is here, but a love for God, and a passion for God, a trust in him, an interaction with him, a submission to him. My will submitted to his will, letting him lead me, basically being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Listen. Something is influencing you every moment of every day. Why not the Holy Spirit? Why not God himself? Do you know who Henrietta Mears is? Probably not. Uh, she's just a was. She was just a Bible study teacher, just a Sunday school teacher. Just a Sunday school teacher. But she understood what it meant to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So God used her mightily. Uh, in Among her pupils of just a Sunday school teacher, uh, names you might recognize like Billy Graham. Also, Jim Rayburn founded Young Life. Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. Okay. Justice Sunday School. This woman understood something. And here's what she said, and it's, it's worth looking at. She said, I believe that it is impossible for any Christian to be effective either in his life or in his service unless he is filled with the Holy Spirit who is God's only pre- provision of power. So let's be honest with each other for a sec here. Let's break this down a little bit. In your Christian life, you're usually frustrated right? Let's be honest. You're frustrated. You're trying to walk with Jesus. You're messing up a ton. You're covered with shame. You don't know if you'll ever arrive, and you're frustrated. Here's the good news. God never expected that you'd be able to do it. God doesn't have faith in you. He has faith in himself, and that's why he gave you the Holy Spirit. If you're trying to be a nicer person, stop. You'll never get there. It's a fool's errand. Okay? Your, your real task is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, by the way, the Holy Spirit, really good at being nice to people. Really, really good. You see, so, so quit trying to look to yourself. Maybe you're frustrated because you're trying to walk with Jesus, but you're using yourself as your power source. God never intended it to work like that. You need to be under the influence. So, let him live his life through you which means then you would be humble and growing and serving and blessing and giving and being used by God to extend his kingdom all because you're under the influence of the holy spirit filled by him or or maybe we could just have scholastic debates about the theology of the spirit yay you decide if you follow me on this, what I'm saying is that you really only have one thing to do. On your spiritual to-do list, you have one thing to do. You think you have thousands of things to be a good Christian, right? Nope, you got one. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And then let him lead you and empower you to do the other thousand things. But get the order right. Get the order right. So as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I was reminded of our vision statement. Here it is. You've heard it. We're watching Jesus write countless stories of redemption for messy people like us. And it's desperately what I want for each and every one of you. To, to, like, listen, not to just go through the motions of religion, Right? But but to experience true life change, redemption, where he changes you from the inside out and you're walking step by step with him. You understand that's only possible through the Holy Spirit. There's no redemption stories without the Holy Spirit. There's no life change. There's no walking with Jesus. We have to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to do. Two things. Number one, I'd encourage you to read this book. Maybe this summer sometime. If you've already read it, then go read The Practice of the Presence of God by Lawrence. Okay? So, so read that book. Uh, but here's what I want you to do starting tomorrow morning. I want you to put a post-it next to your bed that says, get under the influence. Now, if you want to, you can write Ephesians 5.18 under it. I'd prefer not to, because I want that right next to my bed so that when extended family come in town... <laughs> and they read that and they go, What kind of problem does he have? And then they look over on Shannon's side and they go, Oh my goodness, she's got it too. Anyway, get under the influence. Listen, you put it on your mirror, your bedside table. You know what would be good? Stick it on top of your phone which is probably next to your bedside, right? Because what happens in the morning, we wake up, we grab for this thing, we get to text and email and social media and news and weather, and none of that is what we need to start our day with. How you start your day is so important. And what if the first thing you did tomorrow morning, you woke up and you got under the influence? And you go to God and you say, God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit today? Remind me of your presence. you start praying through that. Start your day there. Get under the influence. Which means then that God will be in control of your life. But you and I know that'll last for roughly five minutes. Right? And then we yank control back. So what do you do? You run to God, you repent, and you ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit again. Okay? Lather, rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, rinse. Uh, you just keep it all day long. You run to God, you repent, and you ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit. What I want for you desperately this week is to get under the influence. I want you to do it for the rest of your life, but would you just this week, every day, start out with that prayer. Put a post-it next to your bed, all right? Let me pray for that. Father in heaven, we love you. We're so grateful, we realize we could not do our salvation, you gave us Jesus. We cannot do our sanctification, you gave us the Spirit. And yet we tend to be so ignorant of Him. And that is you, that is God. And and so Father, we come to repentant in that, we ask you to renew our minds, that we might be a people different. Not because we're great, but because we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Change our lives in that way, and I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.
1: Will you stand with us? As we respond, We're going to recite this creed together. So let's say it together in belief and in faith. It says this, I believe in God, the Father almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.